This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. We have a profound interest in being custodians of our politics. Our lives go better if we take on the custodial role rather than only the partisan role. I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Markovitz, the Guido Calabresi Professor of Law and the director and founder of the Center for the Study of Private Law here to the podcast today. So Daniel, I remember uh, once when you were, there was a book party for your wife, Sarah, and everyone else was giving toasts to Sarah as a warm and fuzzy moment, and you immediately said, let's talk about the work. So let's talk about the work. Um, when I actually first met you, you were writing about lawyering and democratic theory. Your work is incredibly wide-ranging. It's, it's actually hard to capture how many different topics you have covered just in the time that we've been colleagues. And so I wonder if you might, just for, for those who aren't familiar with the work, just, just talk a little bit about the through line uh, um, among the work or the through lines uh, through your work. Sure. Um, first of all, actually, we first met um, when you were my boss at Jenner and Block. <laughs> At Jenner and Block. So some things never change. Yes, I think you might have. Um, um, I, I don't think I ever thought you were going to end up at Jenner and Block. And, although um, it was a delight to have you there. We that met uh, playing video games at Dave and Buster's and shooting skeet. So that's how we actually first met many, many years ago. Um, a through line in the work as uh, a more serious matter. I think the thing that I'm interested in most throughout all of these topics is the way in which people who have competing interests, but also divergent views about justice or fairness, can through institutions, structures, practices, often legal ones, find a way to establish some form of solidarity, and also how that can break down when certain kinds of economic life or legal regimes make that less possible or more possible. And I think that's the theme. That was the theme about the work on lawyering, the ways in which adversary lawyers actually are engaged in a cooperative project. That's some of the work I do on distributive justice. Um, in a way, the work I've done recently on economic inequality is about how certain relations of production make that impossible. Um, and so I think that's the thing that holds it all together. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the, the book that is most, most directed to a popular audience before diving into the, the more scholarly work, is, which is The Meritocracy Trap. So um, it was a huge book. It generated a lot of conversation. I wonder if you could just say a few words now reflecting back on it uh, about how you think about the project and, and whether it, it, it goes anywhere from here. Yeah. So the basic idea of that book is that we think of meritocracy as an unalloyed good, that it's a way of both allocating advantage fairly and giving everybody a chance to get ahead, and also a way of producing an elite that even as it serves its own interests, is also capable and promotes the general interest. And the idea of the book is that neither of those things is actually true. That on the one hand, because people are good at things that they've been trained at, and rich people buy more training for their kids than anybody else, meritocracy now actually blocks opportunity for most people. And on the other hand, it produces an elite that, because it believes it has earned its advantage, claims more than its fair share, and it distorts our economy in ways that actually damage the prospects for everybody else. So those were the core ideas of the book. And I guess I feel like 
when I published the book, it sort of started an argument. And um, when it was published and when I was first talking about it, lots of people thought it was crazy. And now I think something like my view has become sort of the conventional wisdom. Um, I doubt that's because of the book. I think it's more because the book was identifying difficulties in our public life that have become totally apparent since it was published. But in that sense, I feel like it started an argument and the, and the argument has moved in, in my direction. And can you talk a little bit about what you think universities should do and what they ought to be? Because I know you have views on that that are out, separate and apart from the ideas in this book. And I wonder if you think about how to pull them together. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, you have to be really careful about universities because um, there's the elite sector and then there's everything else. Um, so I was actually just on something with the guy who runs the California State College System, the California Community College System. And um, he observed that all these universities are competing for the lowest admissions rates. And he's competing for the highest admissions rate. He thinks it's a virtue of a university to have a 100% acceptance rate because the point is to educate people. And so you should educate everybody who's willing to be educated. And so one segment of the university system is really trying not just to be inclusive in, in a demographic sense, but to be totally open to everybody and to figure out how to educate people on a budget where everybody who wants to get the education should be able to get it. Um, and that's not just community colleges. Uh, if you look at Arizona State University, uh, Michael Crow, who's the president there, um, basically has a model in which he wants to get as many, as many people admitted as possible, and he wants to admit everybody whom he thinks can benefit from the education he gives. And I think Arizona State right now has 135,000 enrolled students. So in that segment of the university sector, the task is to use limited resources to bring as many people in as possible and to figure out how to deliver a meaningful and productive education subject to those constraints. And then there's the elite sector. Um, and, you know, a place like Yale is on the very far end of that. And there, I think the problem is, is quite different. It's that we have too many resources and are directing them at too few students. And so my view there is that what, what universities are trying to do is somehow sort of prayerfully to open up their admissions process so that it's no longer unfair in the sense that the privileged no longer have as big of a leg up and universities are looking for people who come from less privileged backgrounds and trying to find a way to recruit them. And that's obviously better than not doing that. Um, but I don't think it solves the problem. And the problem is that a, an elite university education is too resource intensive and too socially and economically valuable. And so what elite universities really should be doing is educating many more students and never completely moving towards the Arizona State or Cal State Community College model, but, but moving in that direction. We should be educating two or three times as many students as we are because that would dilute the value of our degree. And that would be a good thing for our society and also a good thing for our students for other reasons. So can I just ask a question? Why not 135,000 people? Because even if every Ivy League university multiplied itself by two or three times, it'd still be a drop in the bucket of inequality. Yeah. So I think there are two points here. Um, one is it would be less of a drop in the bucket of inequality than people think. And the reason for that is that our economy and our cultural regime has become so unbelievably top heavy 
that in fact, if one can do something to dilute the advantage, both the income and the wealth, but also the cultural advantage of a very narrow elite, one's actually doing quite a lot for inequality. Um, you know, if you could make the tenth of one percent or the half of one percent materially broader and, and less distinctively prosperous, you would eat away at most of the rise in the overall genie in the United States. So yeah, just to be very clear, you know, the Gini coefficient is a measure of overall inequality. If you look at the Gini coefficient uh, in the bottom 70% of the distribution, it is no higher now than it was in 1970. So all of the inequality is in the top third, and almost all of that inequality is in the top 5% or top 1%. So if you can do something for the top 1% or against the top 1%, you can actually make a big difference in inequality. So that's one reason. But, but the other reason is that, you know, Elite universities do serve a purpose, and to reject one extreme isn't to embrace the opposite extreme. And you know, we need innovation, and we need extremely intensively educated people, and we need very, very high-skilled people. Um, it's just that we don't need them to be quite as privileged and raised in quite as hothouse an atmosphere as they are now. And so for that reason, uh, it's not the case that we should abandon all matters of distinction in education. Uh, and it, it is the case that we should find a way to, to deliver a, a very good education to students who are partly distinguished by having a, an unusual capacity to absorb that education and then produce more skill and knowledge with it. It's a balancing act. And what would you say to a more radical vision? Um, so one response to yours would also to say that that universities are for the production and dissemination of knowledge, and that in fact that is their best and highest purpose and the best and highest use of their resources. And so funding, for example, a generation of research on climate change or basic science is actually far more important for the good of the world than educating three times as many students as it do. Because there's obviously a trade-off if you're going to hire a faculty to teach, or maybe your model is not to hire a faculty to teach and just let them become part of a, a research institute. But that's, I think that might be the question. I think when university presidents talk about the contribution that universities make, they often focus on this piece of, of the puzzle. Yeah, I think there are two parts to this. Um, the first is that, that the U.S. and to some degree the U.K., are actually extremely unusual in the world in that they merge elite knowledge production, scholarship, and research with the selection of an elite for the next generation. And so that's much less true in Germany. It's much less true in Japan. It's even less true in France. And so this idea that you should merge research and teaching is, is a somewhat peculiar one. Uh, on the other hand, it's also the case that US and UK universities are some of the most successful in the world. So uh, it's not that I'm totally confident that it's a mistake. I'm just observing that, that one model, which you've mentioned, is to separate research and teaching, especially elite research from elite teaching, which may be part of the solution, to, to at least not separate entirely, at least pull them somewhat apart. Um, but, but the other part of this is that the extreme eliteness that we have now, particularly in the US university system, actually distorts research also um, in a variety of ways. Uh, law is, in fact, a great example. You know, US law schools, Yale Law School, are, are the greatest knowledge generators about law probably the world has ever seen. Um, you know, we produce the most interesting and innovative scholarship, and our graduates produce the most dramatic legal innovations. But it's also the case that the American legal system 
is more or less a catastrophe. Um, it, its public legal system is falling apart under political pressures. Its criminal legal system can't produce reasonable either substantive or procedural justice. And its private legal system is unbelievably expensive and inefficient. And legal systems that are much less innovative, that produce much less creativity, both among scholars and practitioners, actually produce a higher and more reliable quality of justice at a much lower cost. And I think those two are connected because innovation often serves an interest other than the general good. It often serves the interest in private law of concentrations of capital. So lots of the legal innovations in private law surround you know, the legal creation and then manipulation of financial markets and markets for corporate control, which are great for some people, but don't actually produce a corporate sector that raises employment or raises GDP very quickly. Um, lots of the public sector innovations produce uh, certain kinds of political outcomes for certain political groups, some of which I approve of, some of which I don't approve of, but which aren't collectively part of the good functioning of a political system. And so, so innovation can be distorted itself by a concentration of privilege in the innovation sector. So I, I completely hear that. I suspect that most uh, universities would say that law schools are not actually what universities are. Um, I mean, I think we're as close as you get. We're like a mini university. But nonetheless, um, when they talk about the kind of contribution the university makes to society, they are typically talking about advances in science. And most universities have a science department. And uh, most universities have a group of scholars who are devoted to thinking about knowledge in the sector that they're in. And it's, it's the question is, should they be teaching 3,500 students but, but, but even But even there, if we start looking, let's take two other examples, economics departments. So economics departments were captured by a financialized model of markets. And for 50 years or so, from 1970 to 2020, I don't think have produced particularly valuable knowledge, although they produced an enormous amount of innovation. And I think that's actually becoming part of the conventional wisdom about the last generation and a half of economists, including in economics departments. Uh, if you look at the humanities, the humanities are in a terrible state, in, particularly in the United States right now, partly, again, because they are responding to a series of cultural imperatives, which are different from producing humanistic and artistic thought and production for the broader society. Now, it's not that I'm a big fan of socialist art, but it is the case that many of the ideas that come out of the humanities today are not particularly socially useful. Uh, if you look at the natural sciences, we produce massive innovations, many of which have a relatively low social product. And there's a defense of all of this if you believe in certain forms of knowledge for its own sake, you know, which as a professor, I do, but as a citizen, I don't. <laughs> And it's not clear to me that universities should be structured in a way that is good for the professors. So can we talk about your next book project? Because um, I take it as very much about some of the forces that you were just describing uh, that are shattering, um, shattering law and legal institutions. So can you talk a little bit about the Toleration in Politics book? Yeah. So um, the Toleration book um, begins from the following thought that conventional liberal defenses of toleration and, and liberals in the history of ideas sense, not in the current left politics sense, are the main defenders of toleration. And 
And they have two central ideas, which begin with Socrates and then run all the way through Milton and Locke and Mill. And, and these are, on the one hand, that the mere expression of offensive or malign ideas is harmless. And on the other hand, that intolerance, efforts to suppress these ideas, quickly descend into the kinds of brutality that are obviously harmful. And, and so the, the, the model here is of the you know, minority religion that expresses ideas that others, the majority, finds sinful or offensive, and that the majority response is to exterminate or expel the minority religion. And that model makes sense when arguments for toleration are addressed to a dominant hegemon in a moral monoculture. You know, when you're trying to tell Christians in Europe to tolerate Jews, or when you're trying to tell Brahmins in India to tolerate Jains. But it misfires badly in a multiculture uh, and in a world in which almost everybody is insecure. And it misfires in the following way. Um, first of all, the idea that offensive or malign expression is harmless in a world in which there is wide cultural demographic identity variety and everybody is vulnerable is just false. It actually is harmful to have to sit in a university and listen to a racist lecture if you're a student of color. It is harmful uh, if you're a woman student to listen to somebody who's articulating ideas that women aren't good at abstract or rational thought. And on the other hand, the ways in which people who are moved to try to suppress that kind of offensive speech are now acting is not actually to exterminate those who are speaking it, but rather they're using intolerance as a shield to protect themselves. And so the traditional liberal argument for toleration, first of all, says something that is just false to the lived experience of the people it's directed to, namely, this isn't harming you, when everybody who's hearing it says, no, it's harming me. And second of all, is saying you should accept that harm out of concern for the brutality that you may inflict on others who are wronging you when in your judgment, which is not unreasonable, they are more powerful than you are. And so that argument, the traditional argument is almost perfectly structured to undermine the case for toleration under our circumstances. And so that's sort of where the book sets out from. And then it tries to come up with another argument that might make better sense for our circumstances. What does that look like? Um, so it looks a little bit like this. Um, in any collective venture, people take, take on two roles. Um, one is we are sort of participants or partisans in the venture. Um, we have interests, we have beliefs, we're arguing with one another, we're trying to promote our interests and vindicate our beliefs. Um, and, and that's the familiar one, and that dominates most of our lives. But the other one is that we're also custodians for the venture. Um, we're in charge of making the collective venture go well as a collective venture. Um, and, and an example of this that's most straightforward is, is the playing of a game. You know, we try to win, we try to defeat the other side, we try to damage its interests. But at the same time, for the game to be a success for us, in fact, for us to be able to win it as a game, we also have to enforce the rules, respect the rules, act within the rules, and that's our custodial role. And obviously, politics isn't a game. It's much more dangerous. In some sense, games, I think I'm going to say in this book, if I can write it, they create the ultimate safe spaces because we can fight each other. And the only risk is that we'll lose. Nothing else bad can happen to us. And politics isn't a safe space. On the other hand, it's also true that we have a profound interest 
in being custodians of our politics, um, that our lives go better if we take on the custodial role rather than only the partisan role. And so the argument of the book will be to build up the appeal of that custodial role. Um, I think there's going to be an analogy to, to actually to love as a way of thinking about the appeal of the custodial role, um, both in individual relationships and collectively. Um, but, you know, this is, uh, I hope I can write this book. Um, it's not, you got to get the tone right and you, you got to find a way to write it so that you're speaking respectfully to people who are very different from you um, while also saying what you mean to say. And I don't know that I'll be able to do that. It sounds like it's going to be a fantastic book when it does come, though, and we could all use it. I mean, if it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing, Daniel. I'll just say, I mean, I know I'm, I'm accustomed to our resident polymath here, but it is remarkable how wide-ranging the work is. Can we, can we talk a little bit about um, both your center and your clinic? Uh, so first, the center, uh, uh, if you could just say a few words about what you understand the purpose of the center to be. And I mean, you've run some most remarkable conferences around. I mean, every time I see the guest list, I think I wish I weren't Dean so I could just go hang out and, at the conference all day. But I wonder I wonder how you um, think about its purpose. Yeah. So the center is the Center for Study of Private Law. Um, and uh, you know, if you think about law as being either law that governs the relationship between the state and individuals, that's public law, or law that governs the relationships among individuals, that's private law. So private law quintessentially is contracts, property, tort. Um, the you know most U.S. American lawyers, I think, basically think private law as a category doesn't exist. They think almost everything is public law, and that's a function of American legal realism and the idea that law is just a way in which the collective determines the balance of advantage. And we always need to look to public norms. Um, and you know, the irony for me is my politics very much embraces that set of views. But there is a deep intellectual tradition going back to Roman law, um, which views private law as distinct and in some ways as conceptually anterior to public law. And... Uh, in the U.S. today, that's associated with a kind of libertarian right politics, but it hasn't always been, and it doesn't have to be. And part of the purpose of the center is to provide a place where global scholars who think in, in that way can engage with U.S. American legal thought. So it's, it's, the center's role is, is uh, principally an intellectual one and principally devoted to finding a way to produce cross-theoretical or cross-traditional intellectual engagements. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, a lot of these conferences, we often have two speakers on at the same time, and often the speakers are people who, before they come on, think they will have nothing to say to each other. And, and then what we hope to do is to structure the event and the conversation in such a way that they discover that they're talking about the same thing, um, but just in very different ways. Um, the clinic is partly, this goes back to something you asked me about earlier. I, you know, I wish I'd spent more time working as a lawyer. Um, this is a way to, to do some of that inside the law school. You know, we spent the first year really trying to think about how to structure what we're doing, what, what kinds of matters to take on, in what way to do it. Um, I think we're going to work towards some sort of more entrepreneurial things. We're, we're trying to build a tool that consumers can use in e-commerce in order to read and understand the contracts that they face, um, in order to stop sophisticated sellers from 
manipulating consumers, either by including contract language that consumers don't know about, or by various kinds of dark patterns that push consumers to make choices that they wouldn't otherwise make. Uh, and so that's a, a project that will turn on computer science, but antecedently requires legal analysis to know where best to deploy the computer science. Um, and then we're also working on some more conventional litigation-related matters concerning housing and rental agreements, concerning financial contracts and consumer debt. Uh, there's a fellow who practiced for a few years, graduate of this law school, who works with me on it. The students break into teams based on their interests to work on one or the other of these projects over the course of a semester or a year. And you know the ultimate product depends on the nature of the project. I mean, it could be something as um, lawyerly and traditionally lawyerly as a brief. Uh, it could be some kind of legislative advocacy, or it could be a Chrome plugin that people can put on their browsers when they shop on the internet. So who are your clients for the litigation piece of it? So that's something we have to figure out. Um, uh, our clients, dep it depends. We, we are thinking of doing something uh, in the consumer debt area where we might try to build a class and have a class action. But of course, that requires institutional capacity inside the clinic to manage it. Um, and that might require us to partner with an outside law firm. Um, we might run an amicus practice um, in which the clients would be interested civil society groups. And I think one of the things that there's a lot of room to do now, particularly in the consumer space, because an interesting thing about consumer law at this political moment is that there are a series of both political groups and social and economic interest groups that traditionally code conservative or red that actually have a profound interest in certain forms of economic justice and certain instances of consumer empowerment and rights and are probably for that reason, in fact, I know are for that reason, underserved by the elite activist legal establishment, which tends to code blue. And so one thing we are also looking into is whether for some of these cases, it might make sense to have as our clients, if we have an amicus practice, groups that fall into that category. Um, and there's actually a lot of interesting work. There are lots of, for example, southern states that have long histories of extremely progressive consumer law. Um, now somewhat in desuetude, but, but still fairly deep in the traditions of those states. And so that, those are places where we might get involved. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, I mean, Heather, you know this. Um, I'm finding my feet here and trying to figure out how to do this and how to do it well. And so we're moving deliberately and cautiously um, and uh, want to not make, at least not make obvious mistakes. We're going to make a lot of mistakes, but I want to not make the ones that we should avoid. Can I just ask you a little bit about what it's been like to parent over COVID? Yeah, you know, it's been from the privileged place that Sarah, my wife, and I have been in. It hasn't been that bad um, in 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 multiple ways. You know, first of all, obviously, my wife's also an academic, so um, our jobs were never at risk. We could continue to do our jobs, so it's not just that our jobs were never at risk, but the part of our lives that involved our work was never taken away from us. Um, our children are older, so that Zoom school was perfectly plausible. Um, Actually, one other thing I've been doing over the past year is, uh, together with somebody at Harvard's Ed School, um, I've sort of convened a bunch of people in education to talk about 
the pandemic and schooling and gather data on what's happened. And one of the things that's absolutely clear is that for parents of small children, this has been just humanly unbelievably difficult. In some sense, no matter how secure they otherwise are, um, because it's transformed their days and their lives. Yeah. Um, That's why every university is extending tenure clocks by yeah. years, two years. Yeah. It's, so there's that part of it. And there's also just, you know, there's the question about what you need to keep your job and to, to get ahead in your life prospects. Um, but there's also just, you know, we've created a form of life and a set of ambitions, which rightly or wrongly um, leaves people, many people, feeling like when they have children, full-time, all the time, with their children wasn't the regime that they expected, anticipated, constructed their own emotional lives for. And then all of a sudden, it happened. And that's just difficult. And, and even if everything else in your life is secure and going swimmingly, it's difficult. And if everything in your life is not secure and not going swimmingly, it's only more difficult. Can we just maybe close a little bit talking about the next couple of years of American politics? Because I, I, I know that your your work on economic inequality is very much tied to a sense of urgency about about democratic crisis, which is a different question from what's going to happen in American politics in the next few years. But I do wonder how you must feel when you see every day in the headlines things that are connected to your work and, and whether you want to talk about them at this moment or talk about them in the future. I'm very curious. So, so I think... Um... There are going to be parts, if I can write this book on toleration uh, of this book, that will be a little bit about that in, in the following sense. Um, I think there are some genuinely malign forces in our society. I don't actually think that there are that there are more of them or that they're stronger than they have been in other times in my life. Um, you know, there are lots of periods in recent American history in which there were major national political figures, for example, um, who took the view that racism and race-based discrimination wasn't just morally okay, it was morally required. And, and so the fact that there are open bigots in our public life now you know, is terrible, but shouldn't be surprising and isn't in fact, in the sweep of the American experience, that unusual. And I think it's important for us to remember that. I think the real threat now is that for complicated reasons, which we could talk about, um, the, the underlying security of our basic democratic practices is significantly at risk. I mean, you know more about this than I do, but in ways in which it hasn't been before. And, and I think it's really important here to distinguish between you know, voter suppression and unfairness in elections, which has always been part of America, and um, you know, which is a grievous injustice, but isn't the end of America. It's just part of America, and it's a constant struggle to stop it. And the prospect that the person who is understood to have won the election will nevertheless not get power, which would be a different kind of problem. Yeah. And I feel like that's a risk now of a sort that we haven't faced in some time. But if we can get through the next five years, I'm much more optimistic. And, and you know, one, one reason for that is, is this, maybe it's just a comparative point, and maybe you know, it's, it's schadenfreude or something, I don't know, but um, schaden optimism. 
If you compare our politics to European politics, um, young people are mostly committed to democracy and the rule of law in this country and are not authoritarians or proto-fascists. Whereas if you look at who supports, say, Le Pen in France, it's young people significantly. And, and so in Europe, there's a long-term problem. Whereas here, I feel like if we can navigate the next five years, I think things may look less dire than people who have my left politics intuitively feel them to be at this moment. Well, thank you, Daniel. This is wonderful. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for taking the time. Happy to do it. Mm -hmm.